0: rcaf jump seat you are clear for takeoff rcaf jump seat the official podcast of the royal canadian air force today in the jump seat master warrant officer manuel Segan. now here are your hosts captain john jacob and captain jenny mccasha
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of RCAF Jump Seat. My name is Captain John Jacob. I'm a flight instructor at 402 Squadron and here is my co-host.
2: Good morning everyone. My name is Captain Jenny McCosham. I'm a public affairs officer at 17 Wing headquarters.
1: Today with us we have Master Warrant Officer Emmanuel Seguin who is the school warrant officer for Canadian Forces School of Survival and Aeromedical Training. He has also had a decade of search and rescue technician experience under his belt. Manny, thanks for joining us today. All right, good morning. How did you end up in the search and rescue technician trade?
0: Well, I started uh, in the military as a medic and uh, I got transferred to Comox in 2005. I was already uh, big into climbing and hiking and diving and all that stuff. So it just natural progression. I met the Sartex on the base and uh, I, I already had an affinity for all those things. And so I easily got convinced that uh, this was the thing for me. It was combining two passions, which was, you know, the adventure and the outdoors, as well as a way to help people.
1: Well, that sounds like a pretty good sales pitch. Surely there's a couple of challenges involved with the search and rescue world.
0: Well, for sure. It's a a big commitment. I mean, uh, there's a lot of preparation. You need to be ready. Um, I would say that uh, you need a year or more of preparation before you can apply. And then uh, once, if you are selected to become search and rescue technician, it is a lifelong commitment. Uh, Operations are all encompassing. Uh, You become part of a big family and uh, you take a lot of risks together and uh, you achieve missions that uh, you make difference in people's lives. So it becomes a big, big part of your life.
1: And did you feel any, uh, any sort of sadness in saying goodbye to your old trade?
0: Uh, well, I felt like it was a progression, uh, you know. I did uh, deploy as a medic in Afghanistan and uh, I did get to make a difference uh, on the ground there as well as working with the infantry. But uh, I feel like I was able to make a lot of difference in Canadians' life, which is, you know, an important part of who I am.
2: In terms of making a difference, is there a story or an anecdote that you have that you could share with us?
0: Well, yeah, I did, uh, I did over 10 years of uh, operations, so uh, there's a, a ton and ton of story. But uh, one that I I think is pretty funny is uh, when I was in Newfoundland, that was about uh, seven or eight years ago. Um, we got called in the middle of the night and uh, to an area called the Bay of Island. So it's on the west coast of the island. It's a massive bay. There's a lot of cabins, a lot of people fishing recreationally there. Uh, it's a pretty popular area. And uh, of course, Newfoundland, so it was foggy, middle of the night. We get called for a orange boat that is overdue, gone missing. So a few fellers went to, uh, to go for a fishing trip during the day and they never came home that night. So we get launched, we get on scene and we're looking for an orange boat. So very... Very positive prognosis because we're like, oh, an orange boat. Like, of course, it's got to be super easy to find. Like fly. your
2: uniforms. <laughs> yeah.
0: And then uh, we're on NVGs, which is Night Vision Goggles. Once we started looking into the bays, first, first orange boat was spotted under NVG. And then we're like, oh, wow, we got it right away. Wow! So we got closer, put the light on, the boat's red. We're like, okay, it's not orange. Let's go. So <laughs> turns out that there's a very, very prolific company that sells red boats and everybody in that area owns a red boat on shore. Oh, no. So we spend the entire night looking for an orange boat and there's a red boat every couple hundred meters. So yeah, a red boat and an orange boat on their NVG looks exactly the same thing. Thankfully, we found them and they were not in danger, they, uh, they were able to make it to shore. They found a cabin, they found some, some uh, food and stuff and then I, they were nice and cozy. So uh there was no emergency there, but it was it was pretty funny that we got so excited and after the twentieth red boat that we found, we we're like a lot less excited to yeah. find a red boat.
2: Something's going on here. Yeah.
0: But uh it was a it was a it was a good finish. Uh, the Coast Guard brought them. Uh I think they needed oil. Nobody got injured. They went home the next day. It was all good.
1: I bet it's always great when you have the happy ending sorry stories. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh
0: unfortunately they're not always happy ending, but There's these times where it is, when you show up on scene and people did the right things and uh, they're completely healthy. So this is always, always good to see.
1: Right on. And it seems like the search and rescue world has a lot of uh, cause and effect that you get to see on a daily basis. Uh, It's not like some jobs where you may be working on a project for a couple of months and then you hand it off to the next department. You maybe never see it again, Uh, but your day to day uh, at work, uh, you get to see the impact you have. That must be pretty special.
0: Oh, absolutely. This is, uh, and it was, uh, it was somebody mentioning that recently that, uh, you know, I see directly on a day to day what I train for. So I'm going to train all day and then the next day I get a mission and we go do exactly what I train for. And then I get on the boat and I get to do medical on a fisherman that needs help. Like, I see the effect of all the training that I've done immediately in front of my eyes. And uh, I think it's important to pass on that message that everybody, even though they don't see the effect directly, everybody has an effect on, you know, the outcome of that mission. I'm talking here about the technicians fixing the aircraft and working extra hours, working extra long to make sure that there's an aircraft on the line to go do the mission the administration personal or the supply technician that make sure that we have the equipment, achieve the mission. So everybody has their part to play. And I think it's important that we bring back these stories, these success stories, so that everybody feels like their part makes a difference.
1: So from the sounds of it, uh, with search and rescue operations, this is probably the most operational when you think about being at the pointy end at a constant rate the most operational kind of community we have, certainly within Canada. And the squadron has to be a very special makeup and a pretty unique dynamic, I think, to function like that day in and day out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I would say that uh, from my point of view, we are extremely operational. I can't talk for everybody else, but uh, the operations of squadrons 24-7, 365 days a year. And uh, everybody trains together. We become this this kind of, this crew, we always talk about the crew concept where, you know, every person in the crew has something to say and every person can bring something to the crew and also everybody can say no. So it doesn't matter the rank or the training of that person at any time in this crew. If somebody says, nope, too dangerous, then that's it. Uh, It's important to respect that. And that respect and that trust in people comes through tremendous amount of training as well as uh, difficult situation that you find yourself in on missions, right? Uh, It doesn't take many times to be flying in the middle of the night in complete terrible weather and everybody is scared because I don't care who you are, you get scared sometimes. You create that bond, you create that trust. And then if you make it to the end of the mission, then alive, then you trust the people that you achieved the mission with, right? So it is a big family. Uh, those bonds are la- long lasting and uh, trust is the most important thing I'd say.
2: So would you say, would you have a story or something to share that you can give an example of where you experienced that and then you fostered that sense of trust with your crew?
0: I spent four years in Newfoundland Most of the flying on missions is always in bad weather. So I'd say every time you go out, you have to be fully trusting of who you're with. Otherwise, what's gonna lead your decision-making is not gonna be the best outcome. It's gonna be fear. And it's not the right mindset to lead the mission.
1: So I have no doubt that there's a lot of training that goes into preparing a SARTEC before you start conducting missions. But surely there's times where you run into situations that you've never seen before, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, It's funny you mentioned that because I was just having this conversation last week about, uh, I was recently at the Senior Sartec Working Group where we talk about uh, the new procedures we want to, we think that uh, we need to uh, implement or missions that some of the members have encountered during the year and things that we think we need to change. And uh, one of the biggest takeaway from that conversation to me was that we need to be able to improvise and adapt. You can't train for every situation. You just cannot. But if you're trained enough that you still have bandwidth to think outside the box during a mission, this is where you're going to be successful.
1: Yeah. And that's that's a fantastic point. It makes me think about how uh, every aircraft in the RCAF is uh, supposedly a secondary search and rescue asset, which means at any time we could be conducting a mission and be asked to conduct search and rescue. Now we don't have nearly as much training as search and rescue technicians or the SAR pilots and flight engineers uh, in the SAR world. Uh, So what are some things to consider then for those aircrew? and uh, back-end crew you're absolutely
0: right every asset in the military i would say is a secondary asset for SAR domestic uh, as well as uh, some of the navy and uh, i think the important thing to remember is if you get involved in one of those you need to remember your training that you did as a younger crew person in survival because if you're going to be involved in a mission then uh, chances are the weather is going to be bad. You're going to be taking risks and um, you're going to be exposed to more dangerous situation. So that aircrew training that, you know, the member got 10, 15 years ago, or maybe just as recently as last year for Jenny here, um,
1: go through that in your head. So Jenny, you would consider yourself Somewhat removed from the front line of search and rescue operations, but you got to do land survival not that long ago. What was your experience like?
2: I would say I'm naturally a very outdoorsy person, so I would maintain those skills on my own freely, and it's it's helpful if members also do that. And I I really loved the solo phase. I think a lot of people struggled, but it was very purposeful. We had so many activities that we needed to do. You didn't have time to think, and it, even just being out there in the stillness of the wild was so peaceful for me. And experiencing like making your own everything, like boiling the water and Potentially catching your own rabbit, the concept, pretty cool. Some people caught their own birds and just making your own shelter and then falling asleep, looking at the stars was a really awesome experience.
1: And what were some challenges you came across during that training that really kind of stuck with you as you move forward?
2: I would say you have to, once you start your fire, you're set. But sometimes starting it, the the wood might be wet because mine was in the winter or you don't have enough birch bark. So I could see myself getting frustrated. I'm like, ah, my evaluation's in 20 minutes. So just like getting that moment and taking a breath and breathing and just having faith that you will start the fire because that's all you've been doing for the past four days is learning how to do that. That was probably the biggest challenge.
1: I bet. Uh, So, Manny, you see a lot of students from all walks of life come through SIFSAT, I'm sure, for their land survival training. Oh, yeah. And you get a very short window to impress upon these students how to behave in a survival situation, because it might be the only thing separating them from successfully or unsuccessfully surviving. How do you get that across in as little as four days?
0: Well, um, there's, there's two. There's all we try to get it across, and all we measure, all this point got across. So... It's just repetition, you know? The students students come to the school, the first thing we tell them is this is a training that you never wanna use, but you gotta remember it because when you get to use it, you need it. So um, we repeated that often and always. But uh, the measure to me to see if this person has retained the information or is, you know, thriving in that environment is that when you go meet someone that's been alone for three days and a lot of people have never been alone for three days in the wood by themselves let alone camping some people have never gone camping but when you show up there for an evaluation at the end of the soul phase and you see in that person's demeanor and eyes that they've been empowered by this training they were thriving they you know, it, it is difficult. Nobody comes out of it like, oh, that was fantastic. And, you know, super easy, except for Jenny, <laughs> but, uh, the sense of empowerment that the people get out of it, I think is the long lasting memory that they get. So if they end up in a situation like this, 10 years down the road, they were thriving, they felt empowered doing those actions and hopefully that's going to bring that little bit of hope that they can
1: keep going. So I think the slogan here is that hope is the best survival tool. Is that what we're saying?
0: Well, certainly. Uh, there's actually many, many books out there that uh, that say that a big component is hope and something to look forward to. Of course, training is very important. Like if you if you just hope that somebody's going to come, it's not going to help you very much.
2: Hope and purposeful action.
0: <laughs> that is correct. What's That's that? the one. Yeah, and in the Speaking with that, uh, that's one thing I wanted to talk about with that uh, survival training is I've seen, I've got on scene on so many missions where it is immediately obvious that small, meaningful steps were taken at the very beginning of the survival situation that ended up making a big difference at the end. So if somebody froze and don't take those small, meaningful steps, like get away from danger, apply first aid, start a fire, find a shelter, then it starts to go downhill right away. So those are very important. And sometimes it's super easy to do. So uh, I got a question for Jenny, actually. What do you think would be the one thing, one takeaway from that course?
2: The thing that helped me the most was never waiting to look around to see, is somebody else going to do this? Like I literally, our group functioned so well because everybody saw something that needed to be done. Go take the bucket down to the lake and get more water. Don't look around to see if anybody else is going to do it. So everybody was just doing that, putting their hundred percent in and then our team functioned flawlessly.
0: Oh, nice. By the way, everybody was mind blown when you came to see me and you said, Hey, Manny, I really want to do the land survival course. Yeah. And I'd
2: like to do the next one too. Wow, doors always open.
0: (laughs) RCF Jump Do
1: you find it's difficult to impress upon military students at the survival school where most of the experience we've got before then is basic training where we're putting on camo and we're trying to hide in the trees. And now all of a sudden we're in a survival situation where we want to be as obnoxious and visible and audible as possible. <laughs> Do you find there's any challenges with that?
0: Well, I find uh, since uh, our clientele is mostly aircrew, crew, uh, it's not as much of a challenge.
1: <laughs> Guilty.
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's important to uh, that everybody understands that this is, this is not a time for you know relying on others this is your survival situation and you're responsible for yourself so that's why we do a solo as opposed to group survival because you might find yourself by yourself
2: I think too there are some commonalities too though between basic training and then survival training like the whole like function of both is to push you into a stressful circumstance and you have to be able to function and get yourself out of it, whether it's with a group or by yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. you if you never experience uncomfortable situations, you never know how you're going to react to it. All of our training is based on that. Uh, at, whether it is uh, for search and rescue, you learn the skills first, but then you get put in scenarios where it is really stressful in a training environment, so you know how to react to that stress and how to deal with it, how to manage it in order to function still. And it's the same thing at Sefsat where I work right now is uh, you know, we put people in a big tin can and we remove the air so people start to get dizzy. It's so that they experience that. There's a level of stress that comes with it. There's the unknown. Now we're taking away some of the unknown
2: when you look back to when you first began in this in this field to now, would you say that these different circumstances have really propelled you into being able to manage stress a lot better as you as your training has progressed?
0: It helps me put things into perspective better and place things in different category so uh, referring to what Jesus said about you know the unknown uh, with experience come the your area of unknown becomes smaller so there's certain things that i i already encountered so the stress level is going to be lower but i think the most important is being able to categorize certain event and place them so that they don't affect you as much in the moment
1: I'm sure every single mission has its lessons. Do you feel that there were one or two in particular that were really eye openers for you and they really changed your perspective on the job?
0: hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, I got two example, I think right now that, uh, definitely changed my perception of things. One is, um, uh, it was a long time ago. I was a brand new Sartek when we were in BC in Comox, uh, it was a night of course and then uh, we got called out for a snowmobiler that went off a cliff, uh, potentially broken back in the backcountry, uh, in the mountains. So get ready, brief, take off. Not very long after takeoff, we're over the uh, coastal range of BC. And uh, so we're at 10,000 feet and we had a catastrophic engine failure. So when I say catastrophic, it was like, catastrophic. There's, you know, like a car crash noise. And, um, so the pilots relied on the training again, did a fantastic job, got the aircraft stable, turned around, went back to base, uh, very tense moments because we don't know what happened. Right. And then, um, so we made it across the street again on two engines and then land on the base, but the mission's not done. Right? There's somebody in the mountain with a potentially broken back freezing right now. So you can't let that affect you. Everybody's, you know, pretty stressed about what just happened, but you got to shake it off. So there was another aircraft on the line. We switched the gear to a cuff, and uh, it was still a very challenging mission to do a confined area landing in seven feet of snow kind of thing. And uh, we ended up completing the mission. So, you need to be able to shake it off. Something happened, you deal with it, you move on. And then, uh, the second story that I have is uh, we, I was in Newfoundland at the time, and uh, we we're looking for an older gentleman that went missing in the northern part of Newfoundland. And it's uh, night again full-on blizzard in the winter Uh, we took off we had to land for fuel in uh, northern Newfoundland and we couldn't take off the weather was so bad so now there's potentially somebody that's out there in a full-on blizzard lost and um, we had to wait until the weather got better so it was a few hours when the sun started coming up Uh, the visibility was good enough to start to start again and uh, go look for that person and then we search and it was there were cabins and we hoisted to several cabins there's footprints everywhere and we're like ah oh, that person was here for sure and finally um, in mid-morning ish there's uh, other assets that started showing up and one of the uh, civilian helicopter that came to help as a secondary SAR asset located the person and the person was unresponsive They're like, it's over. We found a the person They're unresponsive. So we're like, okay, mission still ours. We're going to go check. We landed right beside, ran to the person that was unconscious. And my partner at the time, because there was hypothermia, the last thing to go is cellular reflex. Cellular reflex is when you, when you touch your eyelashes, that's one of the last thing to go in hypothermic person. Well, lo and behold, that person has a reflex. That person is still alive. We're talking about an elderly gentleman that spent the entire night in the open in a blizzard. We got that person in a helicopter, started warming them up, brought them to the hospital. Their core temperature was very low. Unbelievably low, actually. And by the afternoon, that person was given interviews. So, just like the first mission, the mission's not over until it's over. There's always hope.
1: Wow. And so every mission you do, I bet, keeps building your capacity to maintain that hope when you go look for people in the most dire circumstances possible.
0: I think the most important thing to remember with what you just said is that uh, it might not be your worst day, but it's definitely the person you're going to get's worst day ever. So. You need to keep that in mind, and by keeping that in mind, I think it helps holding on to that hope that you're gonna you're gonna see that mission done.
1: That's incredible, and so clearly your mental toolbox is pretty chock full of things you built up through your training and your career to successfully do these search and rescue missions. But let's talk uh, for a moment about your skill sets. Um, is there something that you were able to train to do as a Sartec that you would otherwise have never had the opportunity, do you think? I think
0: being part of something bigger than yourself definitely helps you push, helps you want to be better, helps you want to be just as good as your peer, because you want to be that person when you get on the ground, you want to be that person that's able to overcome that challenge. So being part of a bigger group and having access to the best of the best we have, you know, we train our own people in parachuting, but we also bring civilian experts to help us get our levels up. We have uh, civilian paramedics teaching us. We have mountain rescue professionals teaching us. So we have access to, you know, the experts in their field to uh, to help with the training, which is fantastic.
2: So with with what you just listed that those types of training, which one did you feel like you gravitated to the most, or you were the most adept at?
0: Oh God! Uh, well, mountain, mountain is definitely my thing. It was always my thing, mm-hmm. and I love the mountains. So even though I was a medic before, and you know the medical aspect is big, like it's very very important in this our trade, it's probably the most important. Mountain is definitely my my coup de coeur.
1: These days, there's a trend uh, across most armed forces, especially ours, where we're looking to modernize everything. The Navy is looking at flying drones off of ships, the Air Force is looking at unmanned aerial vehicles, the Army has been using remote-controlled droids to dismantle bombs for quite a few years now. Do you think there's a space for this technology to come into the search and rescue world or do you believe that something so personable, Human to human, ought to stay with humans. I'm going to caveat
0: this by saying that this is this is me, Manny, my experience. And uh, as I stated earlier, uh, before we started the show, then um, I'm not the most technically, technologically adept. But uh, I think it's important that we embrace technology in order to facilitate these things we're trying to achieve. So whether it's the use of sensor suites that are, you know, very very capable nowadays, or faster aircraft, or drones to locate the, the people. I think it's very important that we embrace that. What I think personally, though, is that the the human aspect, having somebody show up on the ground on your worst day ever, and be able being able to bring a certain level of calmness to the situation that this person finds find themselves in or applying medical acts just comforting the person that's on the ground that just suffered a tragic loss the human aspect is always going to be required in my opinion
1: rcf Jumpsy. All right, Manny. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to move from the jump seat to the hot seat and throw a couple of rapid fire questions at you if you're ready. Let's do it. Coffee or tea before a mission?
0: Coffee, the stronger the better. I wanted to show up on a drug test.
1: Right on. (laughs) We're going to have to redo that one. (laughs) Sorry.
2: What's the most unexpected item in your gear?
0: Ooh. I'm going to say those three in ones coffee thing, because we always have uh, water bottles on board, so you can make iced coffee anywhere, anytime. Okay, I'm seeing a trend here. Early bird or night owl? I'm getting older, so
1: definitely early bird now.
2: What is one skill every SAR should have?
1: Empathy. And what do you do to de-stress after a busy mission?
0: Audiobooks and uh, build stuff. Like over the years, just decided to get into roasting coffee, so I built like a roaster. Well, the
1: coffee didn't go anywhere because, uh, I wasn't able to make any, anything that was decent. Yeah. And last question, do you have any pre-mission rituals or superstitions?
0: Oh, the list is long on superstitions, but, uh, take two minutes, close your eyes, relax, evaluate the situation and then go.
1: Well, Manny, thanks so much for coming in with us today to talk about the search and rescue world. I know it's been eye-opening for me to get a peek behind the curtain and thanks for sharing some of these stories with us.
2: Agreed, yes. Manny, thank you so much for being here. It's neat too, because I didn't know that that was last reflex to go. So I definitely learned a lot of new things today. And John, thanks so much for having me as your co-host.
0: Well, thanks a lot for having me. Um, the more light I can bring on the things that our Canadian military do and the things that we do for Canadians, uh, the better in my opinion so thanks for having me
1: To all the listeners out there thanks for listening to our show we'd like to hear from you if you have any feedback or a story you'd like to share and join us as a guest email us at rcafjumpseat@forces.gc.ca. at if you like what you heard today be sure to subscribe give us a 5 star review and share us on social media and we'll see you next time In, in the, the Jump Seat, seat. RCF Jumpseat Podcast, copyright His Majesty the King and Right of
0: Canada as represented by the Minister of National Defense 2023.